Welcome to the Field of Church podcast. Our church inhales and exhales the gospel every Sunday and is excited to bring our messages to you here. Thank you for joining us and we hope God moves in your life as you listen into this feed. So excited for us this morning to jump into Timothy. We're going to go through First and Second Timothy, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Today we're beginning a journey that's going to last us all the way to the beginning of August as we pull out these rich truths in God's Word. And, you know, I don't know why God gave us a sermon series a while back. If for no other reason than for me, than for God to speak to my heart, you may just be getting the overflow of what the Lord is teaching me. But I think there's some beautiful truths this apostle Paul writes to his young protege, Timothy, and he, he tries to, to charge him to be strong in an incredibly difficult ministry situation as he's leading in the church of Ephesus. And so I want to begin where the Bible begins. So if you have your Bibles, hopefully you do, open them up to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Now we're going to go through 1 and 2 Timothy bit by bit, but we got to take it verse by verse. And so we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to hear what looks like just a salutation, just a greeting, but there's actually some beautiful truth in it. So here's what it says. Beginning in verse 1 of 1 Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now again, I know that doesn't sound like there's rich truth in there until you know the situation with which Paul wrote this. In a little bit, we're going to talk more about Timothy and about his situation, but I want to focus in on Paul because Paul is writing this in a very unique circumstance. In the writing of 1 and 2 Timothy, Paul is in house arrest in the city of Rome. Now, there's some debate about whether he was arrested in 1 Timothy or whether he had some reprieve from a first arrest and into a second arrest, but for sure he had been arrested and was arrested again by 2 Timothy. More than likely, 1 Timothy, he was in some kind of peril. In other words, it's not going at all how he expected it to go. So so think about this for a second now. This apostle Paul had been dreaming for over a decade to travel to Rome because he knew Rome was the epicenter of civilization. He knew that if he could take the gospel to Rome, it could go anywhere. And so he'd been planning, dreaming about this trip to go to Rome. And I am certain that this was not going at all how he expected. He didn't expect to be in house arrest. He thought he'd be able to walk the streets of Rome teaching the good news of the gospel, going to the synagogues and meeting with the Jewish people. He thought churches would be planted and a revival might break forth. There's no way he thought he would be incarcerated and locked down in his own home. It was not at all what he expected. You know, I think sometimes you and I are in kind of a similar situation. When we started the year 2020, none of us expected to be in a similar situation, basically in house arrest in our own homes. We didn't think this is what spring was going to look like. I mean, we didn't think we wouldn't be able to go to a restaurant. We wouldn't be able to go shopping for clothes. We, we didn't think we wouldn't be able to go to school. Who, who thought you would long for school as much as some of you students do right now? Who knew we couldn't even go to church, that we would be, in effect, incarcerated in our own homes, in the shelter-in-place initiative, and that we feel like this is nothing like we had expected. We had high hopes for this year. And I think it's really important to look at Paul's response because here's where he gets theologically deep. Here he is suffering through all these unmet expectations. And yet he still says at the very beginning, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Let me tell you what he's saying with that verse. He's saying, no matter what my circumstances are, no matter how this feels, no matter how unexpected this may be, I know this, I know my Jesus still commands. I know my God still saves. And I know my Christ still brings me hope. In other words, he's saying, I know my God is not defeated by my circumstances. 
And I think for you and I, in the middle of what we're going through right now, right at the very beginning of this service, we need to stop and remember that God is not defeated, that we still have a God who commands, a God who saves, a Christ who brings us hope, that there is no circumstance too much for our God, that there is no battle that our king cannot fight. And, and I just I want to encourage you right now, if you'd be so bold, just to, just to maybe even close your eyes for a second and just whisper to the Lord, God, I don't... I know this year isn't going the way that I thought it would go. But God, I trust that you're still in command. God, I trust that you still save. God, I trust that I still have hope in Christ Jesus. That This is you joining your faith with Paul, saying I'm not gonna let my circumstances define how I feel about God. And, and I think as we begin this service, it would do us well to sing a song declaring victory before it even happens. So we're going to sing the very song we sang on Easter Sunday when we were declaring the resurrection of Christ Jesus. And we're going to say, I'm going to see a victory. Why? Because the battle belongs to our Lord. We're going to say, it doesn't matter what the enemy throws at us. What the enemy intends for evil, God's going to turn it for good. We can trust in him. We are joining our faith with the Apostle Paul, saying no matter what, we know who our God is. He is in control, and we put our faith in him. So let's sing to him. Let's declare our faith, and let's worship and enthrone him this morning. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who? Who can stop him? If you're not shouting, no one then you need to be in your home right now shouting, no one can stop the Lord Almighty. Amen. Now, I, I pray that this has just encouraged your heart and you have remembered the God that you serve. Now that we have him firmly on the throne, now that we know who he is, we can go back to this passage of scripture and we can learn the truth that God has for us because Paul was sending Timothy into an incredibly difficult situation. He needed to remember who his God was. So now we have the ability to look at that situation. We're gonna keep on reading in the text. We're moving on to verse three. And we're going to read verses 3 through 7. Here's what it says. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure, and a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law, listen to this, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Basically, Paul is laying down some words here. He's slapping some people around, saying, you guys, you think you know what you're talking about, but you don't have a clue what you're saying. So what Paul has done now is revealed to us the issue, the reason why he's written to Timothy. He said, Timothy, I want you, I'm going on. I want you to go be in Ephesus, and I want you to stop the false teaching that is destroying the church in Ephesus. Now, you may not realize how bold of a request that is until you know just how bad it was in Ephesus and just how inadequate Timothy was to the task. So let me, let me start with Timothy. Let me, let me tell you a bit about this guy. So Timothy was won to the Lord by, by Paul in one of his missionary journeys. That's what it said in verse 2. He said, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, meaning the one that I led to faith in Christ Jesus. Now, most historians believe on his first missionary journey, Paul went through a city called Lystra, and that's where Timothy was from, and he came to know Christ, probably when Timothy was still in his teens, maybe a late teenager. And so Paul immediately sees something in Timothy that's unique. He sees potential and ability and maturity. The only problem is Timothy couldn't see it in himself. What you discover about Timothy is he struggled incredibly with self-identity, with insecurity. In fact, you, you see a little glimpse of it back in verse 2. 
when he says to Timothy, my true child in the faith. I think one of the reasons he had to put that word true in there is because Timothy struggled with identity. He felt illegitimate. You see, Timothy had a Jewish mother and a Greek father, which meant he didn't fit anywhere. The Jews didn't receive him because he had a Greek father. He didn't fit in with the pagans because he had a Jewish mother. So he was just kind of left to the, to the, the, the wind, you know, no true friendship, nobody who would be with him and accept him and bring him. He felt illegitimate. And Paul says, Timothy, don't believe that lie. You are not illegitimate. You are a true child in the faith. He's trying to warm him up and encourage him because apparently Timothy needed it. What you discover is you read First and Second Timothy is all the times that Paul has to say to Timothy, Timothy, don't be afraid. He says, I haven't given you, God hadn't given you a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and a self-discipline. He says, guy, don't let anybody look down on you because of your age. Be strong, be bold. You see, Paul saw something in Timothy that Timothy couldn't see in himself. He felt weak and inadequate and too young and inexperienced. And what made matters even worse is that this young, inexperienced leader, Paul puts in one of the worst churches to lead, Ephesus. Now, interesting, what made Ephesus so dangerous, the, the city itself was a highly pagan city that had the, the temple to Artemis, the Greek goddess, and there was a lot of paganism in there. But the greatest threat to the church in Ephesus was that the danger of false teaching was coming from within the church, not from without the church. In fact, about five or six years before Paul sent this letter to Timothy, he had already warned the elders in Ephesus about this danger. So I want you to keep your, your place in 1 Timothy, but I want to read for you what it says in the book of Acts. If you were to go to Acts chapter 20, what's going on here is Paul is on a journey from Macedonia and Greece, and he's heading down to Jerusalem. And he stops in a city in, in Miletus. And in verse 17, listen to what it says. It says, now from Miletus, he, speaking about Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So he's sending out to these elders, the leaders of the church, the ones who are supposed to be in charge of doctrine and shepherding the flock. And he says, come to me and my leaders because I want to share some words with you. And then he speaks to them for a season and reminds them of all the words and challenges he gave them. But then he gets to verse 28 and listen to the warning he gives the elders of Ephesus. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Listen to this. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Did you hear what Paul said? Paul is speaking to the elders. And he says, fierce wolves are coming and guys from among your own ranks will come people speaking twisted words. In other words, you elders will be the ones who will twist the truth and explain false doctrine and, and devour the flock. And then you go back to 1 Timothy chapter one and you see that very thing happen some five or six years later. Next week, when we continue on in, in chapter one, you're gonna hear two people named, Hymenaeus and Alexander, both of them believed to be elders in the church accused of spreading false doctrine. Now listen, a church that's unified with sound doctrine can, can withhold a lot of attack from without. But when there's false doctrine inside from the leadership of the church, I mean, that church is in grave danger. And Paul sends Timothy to go correct the problem. Now, now get this, Timothy's probably in his early 30s. He's relatively a young man and he's a foreigner. He's not from Ephesus, he's from Lystra. Paul sends this guy from a different town who's in his 30s to go confront these people who grew up in Ephesus who were pillars in the city, pillars of the church, who were likely a lot older than Timothy. And Paul basically says, I want you to walk up to these false teachers, slap them in the face and say, stop all your false teaching. Now that would be hard enough for anybody. But if you remember who Timothy is, 
then this must have been overwhelming for him because Timothy is insecure. He's young. He feels ill-prepared. He's feeling like Paul is putting him in a place that's way above his pay grade. Paul is giving his hardest assignment to his least trained apprentice. And you got to know this was humbling for Timothy. But can I be honest with you? I just have to admit right now in this particular season of my life, I, I relate to Timothy. I relate to that feeling. And I know I got a lot of gray hair, but I, I am I'm still, I feel so young in ministry. And, and I feel what Timothy felt. I feel like in the, the, the time I'm trying to lead in right now of the church, I feel like I'm young, inexperienced and incapable and insecure. Like I am called to do things that are way above my pay grade. I don't know if I skipped the class in seminary where they taught, you, they taught you how to handle a global pandemic, but I don't know what to do. I haven't found the playbook yet. And apparently none of my pastor friends have either. And we're just going, what do we even do? And, and every day feels like greater and greater chaos. I gotta be honest with you. Like there are so many things I don't know how to handle. I, I have had to figure out with an incredible team, praise the Lord, but I've had to figure out how to lead our church to reinvent itself. And I don't know what I'm doing. We're trying to go virtual, trying to do everything to engage with people, experiment in all kinds of ways, and it feels like chaos. I'm having to figure out how to deploy dozens of staff who can't do the job they were hired to do because we can't even gather together. I'm trying to figure out how to prepare our church for what's likely going to be a pretty severe economic downturn. And I don't know how we're going to weather that storm, but we're trying to be wise. We're praying hard. We're seeking guidance. And it just sometimes feels overwhelming. I feel like all I do every day is I'm on Zoom. I've become the minister of Zoom meetings. That's what I do all the time because no one knows the answer and we're just overwhelmed by the chaos and every insecurity comes out in this time. I was just sharing with the staff the other day. I, I was just struggling. I, every, I question everything, the unity of the church. How's this working? Are we staying together? Am I failing right now? It's overwhelming. Now, listen, I don't want you to feel sorry for me because at the same time, God is doing so much right now. He is blessing me through you specifically. I have never received more people who have written me letters telling me how much they appreciate my leadership. How I've never received more cards in the mail, more encouragement from the body. I want to thank you. I don't know how I would survive if you guys weren't encouraging me the way that you are. And listen, I get that God is doing unprecedented things right now. I've seen it in my own home as my own daughter has received Christ Jesus by faith. I, I'm seeing God doing unprecedented things and and I rejoice in that. But that doesn't mean there still aren't, aren't nights when I, I can't sleep because I'm overwhelmed. That doesn't mean that there aren't days when I wake up wishing this whole thing was a bad dream that would just go away. Because it just, it brings up so much of my frailty and my weakness and I hate it. I think Timothy felt the same way. I think Timothy is looking at the situation going, Paul, why would you do this to me? Why would you put me in Ephesus of all places where it's crumbling from the inside? I'm not equipped for this. But see, Paul didn't put Timothy there because he wanted to punish Timothy. He put Timothy there because he saw the opportunity that it was. Paul knew that Ephesus was a gateway city in the ancient world, that it connected Rome and its power with the rest of the world. And if Ephesus could come to faith in Christ Jesus, so would the whole world. And so Paul says, Timothy, you are up for this challenge. You can do this. And in a way that only Paul can do, Paul basically says, Timothy, gird up your loins like a man, brother. Stand up and lead the church. And I gotta be honest with you, I feel like God is saying the same thing to me. Jason, gird up your loins like a man. Lead the church, I've called you to this. And I feel like God is saying, Jason, I know you feel insecure. I know you don't feel capable. And guess what, you're right. But here's the good news, I am. I got this. 
I can handle this situation. You put your faith in me that I'm a great God and you'll see me do even greater things. Let me tell you what that matters for you. If you're watching this, I don't know what you've been through. I don't know how many failures you've had. I don't know how inadequate you may feel, how insecure you may be about all that's going on in your world, but it's not about you. It's about the great God that you serve. And if God can use somebody like me, God can use somebody like Timothy, he can use somebody like you. You just have to be about his glory. Let me tell you about God's glory. He's jealous for his own glory. He wants the world to know that he's a great God. We're gonna sing a song and it says that one day all the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry, our bones will sing, great are you Lord. We know one day every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Why? Because he's a great God. And when we live for that greatness, we get to see the move of God. God can use you when you believe he's a great God. So let's continue to worship God. Let's declare our trust and our faith that we serve a great God. Now, I know you guys, as you've been worshiping in this season, you've been feeling the presence of Almighty God. Now, some of you, like me, just moved emotionally about what God is doing. He's preparing our hearts because he wants to remind us of probably the most important thing of this whole passage we're reading. And it's the great danger that you heard, this false teaching that's still prevalent today. You saw it back in verse four. He says, these guys are teaching a different doctrine. They're devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies which, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, when he talks about these myths and endless genealogies, what he's saying is there were these teachers and they were claiming to have this some kind of secret, hidden, deeper knowledge than anybody else. They would even go to the genealogies. If you've read the Bible before, there are tons of them. There's weird ones. Jochebed fathered Methuselah who fathered this dude and that dude and this massive list. And, and these teachers were saying, Every single one of these names has a super story that God has given me. It became these little myths around these people, and they would create these fanciful stories and claim that God had given them a secret knowledge. And what they were doing was teaching everybody around them that the simple reading of the Bible wasn't enough. Now, you're not mature if you just take it at face value. You've got to look for this hidden, deeper truth. And they were destroying the very fabric of the truth of God's word and the simplicity of it. And here's what's so crazy. This false teaching pervades today. There are still so many people in search of deeper truth in God's word that begin to make it say things that it doesn't say. In fact, just in the 90s, a book was released, so not that long ago, that it was written by an Israeli mathematician named Dr. Eliyahu Rips is his name. And in this book called The Bible Code, he said he was able with a mathematical formula and a computer to decode the Torah, the law in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew letters, which all signified numbers, he was able to decode it and show us that there were thousands of prophecies that were made that were completely hidden until he was able to decode this. And these prophecies were purported to have predicted things like the Holocaust and Hiroshima, things as specific as the election of Bill Clinton and the assassination of John F. Kennedy and, and landing on the moon. He's saying it was all right there. It just had to be decoded by a deeper look at it. Now, there's some of you, when you hear that, you geek out over that stuff. You're like, yeah, Jason, give me more of that stuff. This book was a hot seller. Why? Because everybody loves this, this speculation, these endless speculations. They're so fun to talk about. But here's the problem. They just don't do anything for us. They don't generate faith. They don't change the heart. They don't encourage character. These endless speculations, they may engage the fantasy, but they don't encourage the faith. And Paul is saying this was taking place, these endless speculations, and, and far from building up faith, it was actually destroying faith. That's what he was saying back in verses 6 and 7. Look at those verses again with me. It says, 
Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they, they make confident assertions. They're saying they, they think they know what's going on, but these are vain discussions that produce nothing. In fact, they distract from the main thing. What he was trying to say is, Timothy, you're going to have to stop all this stuff because these endless speculations are leading people away from the most important message of all, the gospel. That's what verse five was saying. In verse five, you really get the centerpiece of the entire letter. Look at what he said. He, he makes it the central theme here. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He says, the aim of everything, Timothy, the one thing I want you to do in Ephesus is make sure people come back to love. And when he says love, he's not talking about warm, fuzzy feelings towards somebody else. He's talking about the love that comes from God himself. First John chapter four, verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved him, but that he first loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's the love that flows from an understanding of the gospel. What Paul is saying to Timothy is remind these people, they're not made righteous because they find secret knowledge or because they're elders or because they're respected in the community. Remind them of their testimony. In fact, next week, you're going to hear Paul give his testimony where he reminds them that all the law can do is expose our brokenness. And he's saying to the elders, guys, open your eyes. Were it not for an extreme, reckless grace of Christ Jesus, you would be broken and dead in your sins. He's saying, come back to the love of Almighty God. That's the centerpiece. And I love how he explains it. He says, it's a love that flows from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. I wish I could take about an hour or two and unpack each one of those couplets right there because they're so deep. But I'm gonna look at the third one for the time that I have left with you. It says, a sincere faith. It flows from a sincere faith. That word sincere is actually a really interesting word. It comes from the Latin two words, sin sede, which means without wax. He says, I want you to have a without wax faith. And you're going, what in the world does that mean? Well, in the ancient world, uh, pots were prevalent. Pottery was the norm. If you had a glass, it was made from clay. You had a bowl, a vessel of some sort. It was all made from clay. And clay was very fragile. It'd get broken very easily. And so what would happen is people would go to the marketplace and they would buy pottery. And usually it was painted and, and that's what they would use until it broke. Now, if you had an, an unholy, ungodly merchant he may accidentally knock over a bowl and it breaks on one side, but he didn't want to lose any money. So what he would do is he would put it as best as he could back together and he would get wax and he would fill in the cracks because you can never find all the pieces. And then he would repaint it and he would put it out on the market and sell it as if it was new. But the problem is it had wax in it. And if it had wax, the moment you took that home, you try to put some liquid inside of it and it got hot, that wax would melt and it would break and it would be ruined. But this merchant, many of them who traveled from city to city, he'd move on to the next place. So if you went back there and tried to get your money back, the dude was gone, you'd been hosed. Why? Because you bought a pot that, that had wax. But if you found a pot that was seen said it, without wax, sincere, it meant that pot was exactly what it looked like it was. It was genuine. That's what he's saying about faith. A faith without wax a faith that is what it looks like, a faith that doesn't say one thing and act another way. It's a faith that doesn't pretend, a faith that can withstand and withhold the heat. And maybe you're going, okay, that's, that's cool teaching, Jason, but how do I know whether I have a sincere faith, a without wax kind of faith? It's really simple. How does your faith respond to heat? Because if there's wax in it, it's gonna melt. And right now, in what you're experiencing with COVID-19, you are getting the heat, it is turned up, it's cranked. And here's what I think. I think there are many of you who are discovering that there's been some wax in your faith. There are some things that are dissolving right now. 
There's some times you're getting angry with God. You're wondering if he's really got control. You're wondering if he really has your best interest at hand. Because why would he let this happen to you? Why would he let this happen to your parents or your children? Why would all this take place? What you're discovering is your faith isn't nearly as genuine as you thought it was. It's a faith that has brokenness to it. And maybe you're going, all right, busted. That's me, Jason. What do I do about it? Well, I got a really good answer for you. You believe the gospel. That's what you do about it. That's what he's talking about in here. Go back to love, he says. Remember that you are loved. You cannot save yourself. A sincere faith, the faith that doesn't have wax, is based on the good news of the gospel of Jesus. That's why he says it flows from a pure heart and a good conscience. You know the only way your heart can be made pure is by the work of Christ. This is why King David said, Oh God, give me a clean heart and renew in me a steadfast spirit. In other words, God, only you can do that to me. I can't do it to myself. And the good news of the gospel is Jesus Christ really lived a sinless life. And he died on the cross to pay for your sins so your heart could be made pure and clean. So that your conscience could be wiped new and be made good. And he rose from the dead to show you his power so that your faith would be without wax. It would be genuine because you know he's supernatural. And I think some of you right now, as you're realizing the brokenness of your own faith, the best way for you to respond is say, oh God, give me a second chance. I want to come after you. I want you to heal my heart. I want you to purify me. I want you to give me another shot at this because I know I can't do it, but I believe you can. And here's the good news, the best news you'll ever hear. Right now, you can place your faith in Christ Jesus and you can receive a new heart and get his spirit and watch God do the greatest miracle and build faith inside of you, a faith that's not broken that has no wax in it. The scriptures tell us all we have to do is recognize our fault and say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I've rebelled against you, God. I've done wrong. I haven't trusted in you. I've looked at my own instead of your ways, God. Forgive me. That's called repentance. And then you say, God, take my life. You can lead it better than I can. I'm gonna entrust it to you. And you place your faith in Christ Jesus. You call upon the Lord and you'll be saved. And that can happen to you right now, right where you're sitting but I believe it's going to require a step of faith. It's going to require you believing God is listening to you. It's going to require you reaching out to say, I'm ready to take this faith and to let it redefine me. Now, here's what I'd like to ask you to do. And I know this is a big step for many of you. You want to do something. You believe God's working in your heart, but you're not quite ready to do this. But I want to encourage you, take the step of faith. Go to your computer. Go to filler.org slash next step. Or if you'd rather get your phone, type the word next step to 94253. Connect with us and I or one of the other pastors will reach out to you and we wanna help you. We wanna pray with you. We wanna help you begin this journey because you're gonna need the family of faith around you in this. But take that bold step of faith right now. Trust in the power of your God. But let me also say, there are many of you who are believers in Jesus and I think you could take a step of faith right now by declaring what you believe. And we're gonna do that as we finish this time up by taking the Lord's Supper. And here's what I love about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, the reason why we take it every single week isn't so it becomes rote and routine. This becomes our declaration that the most important thing for us is the gospel of Jesus. Because in the Lord's Supper, you see God's love for us. In the bread, you see the body of Christ that was sacrificed. In the cup, you see the blood of Jesus that was shed for you and me. We're declaring love. So he has loved us. And we receive that love as we take the Lord's Supper. And we're saying, false teaching, endless genealogies and myths and speculations. No, that doesn't matter. All that matters is the gospel of Jesus. I love the fact that even when we can't gather together in person, all over this city, all over this world, we're able to declare our faith in the gospel of Jesus through the Lord's Supper. So here's what I want to ask you to do. If you are a believer in Jesus, 
If you've already testified to your faith in Christ, what I want to ask you to do is in a moment for you to take the Lord's Supper by yourself or with your family in the group that you're with. I'm not going to lead you in it. No other pastor is going to lead you in it. A few weeks ago, we did this. We're going to give you some promptings on the screen that are going to come up after I pray. And I'm going to ask one of you, preferably if there's a husband or a father who could be the spiritual leader in your home, step up to the biblical mandate for the husband and the father. I would like to encourage you to, to be that spiritual leader in your home and to lead in the taking of the Lord's Supper. But I also know a lot of you watching have many different situations. And maybe there's not a, a father figure or a husband or maybe he's not a believer or maybe you don't even have any parents. You're a teenager watching this and you're by yourself. Look, that's okay. You can, you can take that role. Somebody step up as a spiritual leader and follow the promptings. And we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And when we take the Lord's Supper together, after that moment, you're going to have a chance to pray. And it'll tell you exactly what to do. And then you're going to see a slide that says, Fielder Church, you are sent. And that time's going to be over. But I want it to be for you, your declaration of faith, that you believe all that matters is the gospel of Jesus. And the gospel's enough. So let me pray for you. And then you're going to be able to take the Lord's Supper in your family. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gift of, of this morning. Thank you, God, for the gift of the gospel of Jesus. Thank you that you loved us, and the only love we give is just in response to the love you've given us, and we're gonna build our life on your love. And God, I pray that as we take the Lord's Supper, that it rushes over us, this beautiful reminder that the body and the blood of Christ is enough. God, protect our doctrine as we look to the gospel and the gospel alone for truth. And we love you. We serve you. In Jesus' name we pray.